how does Spider-Man Homecoming stack up against the previous Spider-Man films? Let's light it up. Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm your host, Noah. This is my brother, Ian. We are the Brothers Smith, and this is our Forge. Over the last week, me and my brother both saw the new Spider-Man Homecoming film, and we decided we'd sit down and compare and contrast with the other films and just kind of tell you some of the good and the bad that we found in it. Yeah, we both went and saw it, and uh, we've analyzed every little bit of the movie and came up with uh, our good points, our bad points, and just kind of pick the whole thing apart. We're going to break today's episode down into two halves. We're going to start off with a spoiler-free section of this for those of you who haven't seen the movie yet. We're going to have a little break in the middle, and then we're going to come back with some of the more in-depth, uh, spoiler-laden stuff for those of you who have already seen the movie or who are glutton for punishment. And at the end, we'll kind of give you a little bit of things we want-slash-expect to see in future movies with Spider-Man. So first up, we have, in our spoiler-free category, we're going to go over some of the more general good things that we both saw in the movie. Yeah, we're going to go over good and bad and uh, try not to give away too much of the story for you. So starting off with uh, good, uh, my first element in the good part is the casting of the movie. Uh, They really nailed it. There's uh, a lot of interesting choices that all really worked out real well. Probably the biggest one, uh, and I think we both agree on this point, is the casting of all things the villain. Michael Keaton absolutely nails uh, a very believable and well-fleshed-out Vulture. With most Spider-Man movies, the thing that either makes or breaks it is the villain. Going back to the Tobey Maguire movies, the first one, you had Willem Dafoe as the insane Green Goblin, which worked perfectly. Willem Dafoe can pull off nuts very well. And the second movie had the second movie had Alfred Molina playing Doctor Octopus, which was probably one of the best played villains from the um from the Tobey Maguire movies. Contrast that with the third movie where not only did you have too many villains, but aside from Sandman, none of them were very believable or very well acted. That's one of the strong suits of Homecoming, is that much like the first two Tobey Maguire movies and the first Andrew Garfield movie Michael Keaton as the Vulture absolutely nails the role, and he's one of the few sympathetic villains that we've had in the Marvel Universe who still feels like he's doing something, who still feels like an actual villain, unlike somebody like Loki, who's seen more as an anti-hero. Yeah, and it's funny that you brought up Sandman, because that's one of the first things I thought of when I saw it, was this reminds me a lot of Sandman from uh, the Spider-Man 3. He's not considered a, a, a real super... Uh, villain. He's kind of just a, a, you know, what I would consider a B-list villain for Spider-Man, but uh, they they make him very sinister in the movie, but at the same time, he's very believable and relatable. Uh, they humanize him a lot, and it works real well uh, just for the overall tone of the movie. Yeah, without giving away too much, the reason Vulture works so well is because they play off Adrian Toomes as this very believable and relatable character he's pretty much kind of like the everyman in this film it's kind of like he's driven over the edge by one thing that basically screws up his entire life and he sees turning the villainy as what he has to do yeah it's very much playing into the the concept of you know the one one bad day can turn anybody into a bad guy he's just this very 
you know, salt of the earth, blue collar kind of guy who just decides that the best way for him to make it in the world now is to turn to being a criminal. One of the other things, particularly with casting, that worked amazingly well is obviously I can't give him too much credit for Robert Downey Jr. as he's been in numerous Marvel movies at this point. But the chemistry that him and Tom Holland have in the scenes together, they play off of each other in a very pseudo-father-son relationship, and it works really well. Somewhere between that and a big brother-little brother relationship. Yeah, and the uh, you can tell that the writers and director of the movie were pretty self-aware because you know, Robert Downey Jr., anyone who's familiar with his early career, I mean, he was part of the, the teen wa- uh, wave of teen actors in the 80s, and so this movie uh, borrows some of those themes, except in this this case, he's cast as the, the fa- doting father figure from those movies instead of the uh, the rebellious teen. And you kind of get the feeling throughout it that he's trying to do better than his father did, and he even makes the comment at one point that he w- wanted Spider-Man to be better than him. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because we saw in Captain America Civil War, not as fleshed out as it gets in this movie, that Tony Stark slash Iron Man really looks at Peter Parker as kind of like a, the new 21st century version of him, this sort of you know, young genius who, uh, in this case, his path into superhero status is through uh, actual powers instead of building the suit, but same kind of thing. He's a He's a science nerd. And one of the things I'll give them is that his comments about him being better than them and being like the best of them builds towards the future of Spider-Man, where in the Marvel Universe, especially in the comics, Spider-Man is kind of like the central figure of the entire comic book. Stan Lee described him as being their Mickey Mouse, and that's kind of how some of the conversations lead you to think that they're going to go in the future. Well, and it makes sense, too, because if you think about it, Iron Man in the... Marvel movie universe is kind of the central character right now. So by setting him up in this sort of role with Spider-Man, kind of gives you the the ability that if they wanted to, they they could pass the torch. Moving on to some of the other casting choices, all the characters specifically inside of Peter's high school feel like real teenagers. They, I mean, they have some of the stereotypes and tropes used throughout here, like having the cool kid or the nerd or whatever. But overall they're flushed out enough that they feel like real people. Yeah, and really that's kind of one of the hallmark elements of the whole movie is the fact that each character feels like a real person that you would meet in everyday life or on the street, including the people who are actually on the street. And one of the things that that lends itself to is this movie is not going for the epic feel that a lot of the other Marvel movies have gone for. This is a much smaller scale movie with some of the directors and people involved with Marvel kind of saying that they were going for something close to one of the 80s teen movies, something like Breakfast Club or Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And that feeling is throughout the movie. Now, as I'll talk about in a minute, that kind of is also to the detriment of it, but it does nail that feeling perfectly. Yeah, I mean, they they mentioned several times in the development of the movie that you know they, this was going to be uh, Marvel's version of a, of a teen flick, and you really get get that sense really from the beginning, and it just even the some of the uh, the pacing of the movie and everything fits into that formula really well, especially that the sections of the movie where we're dealing with Peter Parker uh, in high school, uh, and you know the typical teenage stuff that that you know you see in a movie about teenagers in high school and what they deal with. 
and some of the shots are like shot for shot reproductions of some of these movies. One of the things that got me is the at one point he's given detention and I almost expected it to turn into the Breakfast Club at that point with the kind of uh, motley crew of uh, students that they have in the detention. Yeah, that, and then also, once again, not to give elements from the movie away yet, but there's a there's an action sequence where we see Spider-Man uh, running through people's backyards and jumping off their roofs and stuff, and literally um, in somebody's house, they're watching... Uh, almost shot for shot, the same type of thing, uh, scene playing out from the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I mean, it literally, it's a meta moment. So speaking of things that were both good and bad in this movie, that's kind of how I felt about uh, Aunt May. The good of it is that she nails the role pretty well, the idea of a more realistic Aunt May. Because one of the things that was always kind of weird in the comics is that it's supposed to be his aunt, but she's old enough to be his grandmother, even though she's not supposed to be his great-aunt. So having her be more the age of somebody that would be his mother does make more sense. However, there are some issues with it as far as compared to the way the character usually is portrayed. What's the matter? You don't like Granny Aunt May? No, I like Granny Aunt May. It's just that... This works more realistically, but at the same time, it's a much different take on the character than what we usually get. Yeah, the that was one of the things that I think a lot of people who are used to the comic book uh, version or even some of the animated versions uh, from the 90s. Or even the Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield movies where she was still... Andrew Garfield got a little younger, but she was still an elderly lady. Yeah, I mean, you're used to seeing, you know, this sweet little old lady as Aunt May, and then now all of a sudden we have Marissa Tomei, who, you know, and they play this up a little bit in the movie to a lot of people, especially in the uh, the 80s and the early 90s. I mean, she was one of the, considered one of the most beautiful people in Hollywood and, you know, was a borderline sex symbol to, to some people. So to have her now playing, you know, Aunt May to uh, in this movie, it kind of throws your preconceived ideas of the character out the window. Yeah, Aunt May, rather than being the elderly aunt, is much more like a cool older sister in this version. All right, so we're going to take a little quick break right here. When we come back, we're going to have our spoiler-free section on some of the bad things that we found in this movie. All right, and we're back from our break and uh, going into our spoiler-free bad uh, section of the movie, things that we had an issue with. Uh, before we went to the break, we were talking about Aunt May and some of the things that we kind of liked about the new characterization. Uh, but at the same time, it also works as a bad because it's not Aunt May. Albeit, you know, like we talked about, an aunt isn't necessarily someone that's your grandma's age, but... That's what we're used to. That's what the comics have. Uh, so this is kind of a total reimagining of the character. And it just doesn't have that same family vibe to it. And maybe that's part of what they're going for in this is to try and, I guess, update it. 21st century, you know, the little old lady in the little house baking cookies isn't exactly, you know, edgy or cool anymore, I guess. And that's the thing that 
everything in this movie that's changed is changed for the sake of realism. They update with having a lot of characters not be white because the makeup of modern-day New York is much more diverse than it was back in the 70s and 80s when the comics were written. So, everything is done for the sake of realism. But in this case, while it's more realistic to have Marissa Tomei playing Aunt May, it's not the characterization we're used to. Now, she does get a few like life lesson moments thrown in there throughout the thing where she's trying to teach Peter and uh, talk to him in much the same way as Aunt May. But I'd like to see more of that kind of characterization along with the more modern version of Aunt May because even in the Ultimate Comics where they did make her a tech-savvy, more hip and cool kind of character, she was still very much the wizened, older person who was uh, kind of mentoring Peter in the same way that in this movie you have Iron Man mentoring Spider-Man. I think this kind of walks into one of the issues that we have with the overall portrayal of Spider-Man in this movie is that it takes away from this sort of um, moral centering. Spider-Man is the stereotypical Boy Scout kind of character, and I think some of that may come from Aunt May uh, slash Uncle Ben, which we'll get into that later, um, as sort of his grounding uh, force to pull in from the other comic book hero universe in DC. Superman has, you know, Ma and Pa Kent, which is his, you know, his focal point, his center, uh, from where he gets his morality and his sense of right and wrong. And for Spider-Man, that was always Aunt May and Uncle Ben. And in this movie, you don't really have that from Aunt May Moving on to one of the other things, this was one of the ones we had as good, but also has some bad elements to it. The nailing, the aspect of it not being epic. While they do that very well, and I've even heard um, one of my favorite YouTube channels to watch, uh, Channel Awesome, which features the Nostalgia Critic. The guy who plays the Nostalgia Critic, Doug Walker, did a review of this with his brother, and basically they came to the conclusion that about the first half of this movie is a really, really well done Disney Channel movie. And that's kind of how the, it feels. It's not anywhere near as epic or having anywhere near as big of consequences as a lot of the other MCU movies. They nail that tone perfectly, but at the same time, I wanted to see something bigger. Because not only is Spider-Man usually the moral center point of the Marvel Universe, he's the center point of the Marvel Universe in general. Whereas so far in the MCU, Iron Man has kind of held that role as well as Captain America to a certain extent. Spider-Man has always been their flagship character that kind of drives everything. And to see him kind of given almost like a side episode, in a way, or a breather before we get Infinity War, it kind of hurts that characterization for me. I think it's just that they want to ease Spider-Man in, because I don't think they quite know what their what their plan is with him yet. Probably a little bit to do with the fact that they have all the legal mumbo-jumbo to deal with with Sony to use him, but it feels like they're kind of hesitant to put all their eggs into that basket right now. Yeah, I was just about to say, I think a lot of what we've seen as far as, you know, this sort of slow burn on Spider-Man has to do with him being uh, a Sony property first. I mean, from the opening credits, you see Sony's name about five times before we even get to an actual, you know, scene of the movie. Um and so it's very obvious that he is, you know, Sony holds these rights, and it's a tenuous relationship between the two uh, 
between Sony and Marvel Studios of having him in these movies. So that could be part of it too, because if Sony decides that they don't want to do this anymore, or Marvel decides they don't want to do this anymore, they would they don't want him to be so ingrained into the the universe that they're building that when they pull him out, you know, there's a big hole missing. Although newsflash, if you put Spider-Man in and then you take him out, yeah, a lot of people aren't going to be happy about that. Exactly. And kind of going along with that, this movie isn't as ingrained into the MCU. It, I'm not going to say that it's not related to it because there is a lot of stuff, particularly with Vulture, that has to do with the greater MCU. But it doesn't build the universe as much as a lot of the other movies do. Even going back to some of the earlier movies... The first Iron Man movie didn't really build much, and neither did The Incredible Hulk. But by that third movie with Thor, and then going into Captain America and some of the other ones, they have consistently been hammering out more and more things that are to come in the future. Either in Easter eggs, or just things that are like, yeah, look at that guy's name over there. They have a few of those for Spider-Man's universe, but they don't really have any of those for the greater Marvel universe. Yeah, I mean, even in in, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, I mean, there are several big chunks there that maybe when you first watch the movie you don't realize but when you start when you if you rewatch it or when you start seeing the movies that came after it you realize yeah that there was a lot of stuff in there that's going to influence the movies later on plus with Guardians of the Galaxy while they didn't relate as much to the other Marvel movies they either related to themselves or they're relating to things that we're going to see or expect to see at least in the Infinity War movie that's coming up next year I believe yeah, it's uh, I think it's next summer is when we see it, and uh, the thing about uh, Guardians of the Galaxy is it is it kind of opened the door for this other aspect of the Marvel universe that anybody who re- who's read the comic books is familiar with. That if you went go back or watch Doctor Strange or some of these other movies, you see um, this sort of uh, cosmic. Marvel Universe, and we're going to see some more of that fleshed out in the this next round of movies in the next couple of years. And continued the mixing of what is magic versus what is technology that we would see in the Thor movies and Doctor Strange. Yeah, and then I think this Spider-Man, one thing, although I, I totally agree with you, it's not, you know, it's not the epic hero movie, and we, we both agree we want to see that. We want to see that happen. Um, what it does is it opens the door for, I think, you know, a theme we've talked about a lot is the everyman aspect and the concept of, you know, the smaller stories and the smaller heroes and kind of going off on the side here. But one of the things that's gotten really popular for Marvel here lately is their Netflix series with uh, Daredevil and uh, Luke Cage. And those are, if nothing but... Uh, or nothing if not uh, the everyman story, you know, street-level superhero. And so this could also be kind of a gateway to allow some of those characters to be able to come and fit into the wider MCU. And with having Spider-Man in Queens, he's certainly in the right area for that. The thing to me, though, is that I kind of feel like this movie would have worked better on the Netflix series side of it because it doesn't have the hugeness to it. And the thing with this one is I think it's fine for what it is. It's not anything that really offends me or anything. It's just that I'd like to see more and I hope I will see more in the future. 
for the sake of brevity, we're going to cut our Spider-Man review right here. But if you'd like to hear our spoiler-filled take on this, follow us on SoundCloud or subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play because the next podcast we put out will be the second half of this. Until then, I've been Noah, he's been Ian, we are the Brothers Smith, and this has been our Forge.